Welcome to Ancient Words, Modern Message. I'm your host, Roger Womble. The past is a mirror, and the more we examine what came before us, the more we can understand where we are heading. The Jews who returned home from exile in Babylon in the 6th century BC faced the daunting task of rebuilding their lives and their temple in Jerusalem, dealing with opposition from hostile neighbors and their own frailties. Through his prophet, God encouraged them with an amazing glimpse of what he would do for them in the future as a promise of his help in the present. Join us for a study entitled, Strength for Today, Bright Hope for Tomorrow, fourth in this series from Zechariah 7-11, through 11, which we call Promises Made, Promises Kept. I remind you that Zechariah, whose name means God remembers, and that's, that's pretty significant. Even the name of the prophet, God remembers, and specifically, God remembers everything that he has promised. And whatever he promises, of course he remembers, and whatever he promises, he will do. That's why the title of this series that I've chosen is Promises Made, Promises Kept. Zechariah was uh, among the remnant, uh, that is a, a portion of the Jews who were in Babylon and had been in Babylon for 70 years. At the defeat of the southern kingdom of Israel at the hands of the Babylonians, and exiles being carried off into Babylon for a 70-year period of time, and then under the new powers that existed, no longer the Babylonians, but now the Persians. And so under the Persians, a, a remnant of Jewish people was allowed, in fact encouraged, to return from exile and that was for the express purpose of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem that had been destroyed by the Babylonians 70 years before. The return of this remnant from exile in Babylon to their native land uh, began at least in 538 BC. And Zechariah, most likely having been born in Babylon, was part of that remnant of Jews who returned uh, 538 BC, again, for the purpose of rebuilding the temple. Now, as easy as that might sound, that their, their job was to rebuild the temple, they were surrounded, those, uh, those Jewish exiles, come back from exile, they were surrounded by opposition, by the people who were living in the land and didn't particularly like the idea that the Jews were back again and had some building plans. So there was opposition to that. And then you add to that the spiritual weakness of many of those people themselves. And you put that together and you understand that the Jewish people, these folks who had returned from exile, needed admonition and they needed encouragement. And that is why God raised up two prophets in particular to provide that admonition 
basically calling the people to the task for which they had come when they lost interest and a will to do it. And in fact, we know that that took place over an 18-year period of time, that the work on rebuilding the temple ceased. And so God raised up these two prophets to admonish the people, but also to encourage them to get to it. And in spite of the opposition, to do what they had come to do. Those two prophets, of course, are known as the uh, post-exilic prophets. That is the prophets who ministered after the exile, having returned from exile. And those two are Zechariah, the one whose book we are studying, and Haggai. And those two uh, are actually considered to be the the post-exilic prophets, they were contemporaries, which means that they ministered right at the same period of time, and they were colleagues in ministry. But again, they needed encouragement. And God, in the passage that we're looking at now in uh, Zechariah, uh, in chapter 9, Zechariah chapter 9, through the prophet uh, Zechariah, God provides the kind of encouragement that the people needed to have. And that encouragement took really two forms. And when we're looking at Zechariah 9, 1 through 17, it naturally divides into two sections. Uh, there is the first eight verses, Zechariah 9, 1 through 8, and then there are the remaining verses, uh, nine verses, and that is Zechariah 9, 9 through 17. The first part of that, that is the first main section, is very interesting in that God uses the yet-to-happen conquest of various groups of people uh, around Israel uh, as an encouragement of what he, God, would do for them that is for the Jewish people in the future. And of course, the individual who is in view, though he's not named here in Zechariah chapter 9, uh, but the individual who is in view is none other than Alexander the Great. I don't know how much you know about Alexander the Great. He was from uh, the province of Macedon, uh, which is basically the Greek peninsula. So he was considered Greek. His father was Philip of Macedon, and Alexander uh, actually rose to the position of being the leader of the Macedonians, and actually, sorry about that, I meant to turn that off, uh, and actually leading the Macedonians and forming a coalition of other uh, Greek provinces as well. At the age of 20, Alexander the Great uh, started his mission, which was essentially the conquest of the world. Uh, and at the age of 22, he set out on just a, a very ambitious military campaign. And in a 10-year period of time, he essentially was the conqueror of the ancient world. Uh, and actually uh, died at the age of uh, 32. And the story goes, 
We're not sure exactly how accurate it is, but the story goes that uh, toward the end of his young life, Alexander was, was found weeping by his, his um, staff. And the question was, oh, mighty Alexander, why are you weeping? And the answer which he gave was, because there are no more worlds to conquer. Uh, that is how successful he was. Well, part of this campaign, which took place in 332 B.C., not long before his death, in 332 B.C., part of that campaign was Alexander actually swept through uh, the area that we would know today as Syria and then came all the way down through the land of Israel on his way to military conquest in Egypt. And that's what we have here in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. And in, in this text, we find that God is, is prophesying through Zechariah that 200 years after Zechariah's day, because remember, we give a date of about 520 to Zechariah's prophecy. We give a date of 332 to Alexander's conquest of what we know to be the area around the Holy Land today. And so 200 years after Zechariah's uh, prophecy, Alexander comes onto the scene and he sweeps through the area. And this prophecy is God's way of saying to the Jewish people that God can and will bring down all of the proud, the mighty, and the haughty. Doesn't matter how rich they are. It doesn't matter how strong or powerful they might consider themselves to be. God can and will bring them down. And then, in addition to that, Alexander's campaign was a demonstration as Zechariah predicted it prophetically, was a demonstration of the fact that all of the enemies of Israel would eventually be defeated. And so now we jump into the text and first of all, consider this idea of uh, Alexander's conquests demonstrating that God can and will bring down all of the proud, the mighty, and the haughty. And in particular, so we look at verses 1 through 4. Look at your text as I read that. The burden of the word of the Lord. Now, by the way, that simply tells us that God placed in the mind and the heart of Zechariah words that he, Zechariah, was to speak. And that was like a burden. He had to do it. And so the burden of the word of the Lord, and then we read, is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. Damascus, we know, is the capital of Syria. Hadrach, by the way, the only place in the Bible where that place name appears, Hadrach. So there's been some discussion as to where is it, what is it. Uh, the consensus of opinion, especially based on some archaeological discoveries, is that it was close to Damascus. And so we have this, the burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus is its resting place. In other words, the word of the Lord is resting on Damascus. 
because God has something to say through Zechariah about Damascus, the capital of Syria. Read on. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. I would paraphrase that. God has his eye on you. Someone's watching, and you can't get away from it. The eye of the Lord is on everybody at all times and on the tribes of Israel. Now, for them, that is the Jewish people, it should have been a warning and a comfort. The warning is, behave yourselves. God is watching you. The comfort is, be strong. God is with you. God is watching you. Read on, verse 2. And on Hamath also, we know where that is, as Alexander in 332 B.C. moved his way from the north down through Syria and then comes into the northern part of Israel, Hamath is there, Hamath also which borders on it, and then there are these two cities, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, or at least they think they are. Tyre and Sidon. They are two cities that were on the Mediterranean coast, just north of modern-day Israel, in today's country of Lebanon. Lebanon. And uh, these two countries, Tyre and Sidon, would be next in Alexander's conquest. And read on what God says through Zechariah about Tyre and Sidon. They're very wise, but, verse 3, Tyre has built herself a rampart. Now, we know historically that that's exactly what happened. There was an old city of Tyre that was right on the coast of the Mediterranean. But in order to make themselves even stronger and, um, and, and, and an impregnable force, they actually uh, took possession of an island a short distance off of the coast of the old city of Tyre. And they literally built a huge wall around the whole island and considered themselves to be um, really able to defend themselves against anyone. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. In other words, they're so wealthy that uh, to them, silver the precious metal silver, is like dust. And gold is like the mud on the streets. By the way, Tyre and Sidon were the leading cities of the Phoenician Empire. The Phoenicians. Uh, and then, what does God say about Tyre in particular and Sidon as well? But Tyre in particular, so proud of themselves, they're very wise, they are very strong. They are very wealthy. Verse 4, Behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions, Tyre, that is, and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Guess what? That's exactly what happened in 332 B.C., 200 years after Zechariah prophesied this. Alexander the, the Great came through, and he attacked that island fortress of Tyre, and the walls were just brought down, and the city was set on fire. Okay, so much then for what we would consider to be the proud, the mighty, the haughty, 
God can and will bring them down. What about the enemies of Israel? And they were many. But you and I know that the perennial enemies of the Jewish people then, not the Iranians, there was no Iran. In fact, Iran is modern-day Persia. And by the way, Alexander the Great defeated Persia. And that's how he became ruler of the world, at least in his own view. Uh, but the perennial, throughout the Old Testament, enemies of the Jewish people, maybe somebody can tell me, who would you consider to be the greatest enemies as a group of people? Over and over and over again, they show up. Any, any guesses or thoughts? Pharisees. I'm sorry? Pharisees. Well, yes, that, but a specific, specifically ethnic group. Yes, Bill. Philistines. Yes, the Philistines. Thank you. You might remember that big Philistine who was nine feet tall. His name was Goliath. And actually, the Philistines, the Philistia, was on the southern side of the Mediterranean coast of Israel. And there were five cities of the Philistines, and four of those are mentioned here. Interestingly, the one that's not mentioned is Gath. That was Goliath's city. And that is not mentioned here, but the other four of the five main cities of the Philistines uh, are mentioned here. So you pick up with verse 5. It says, Ashkelon, that's one of the five, shall see it and be afraid. See what? Well, Ashkelon's going to see what Alexander does to the city of Tyre. And all of a sudden they say, uh-oh, he's coming our way. And sure enough, he came their way. Shall see of it, see it, and be afraid. And then another of the major cities, Gaza, too. By the way, it is the same Gaza that now is in the news a lot. The Gaza Strip. The capital of Gaza Strip is Gaza City. And it is the same region that's at the southern end of Israel uh, that is under the control of Hamas, the terrorist group, today. Gaza, too and shall writhe in anguish. So Gaza sees what's coming. And then Ekron is another one of those cities because its hopes are confounded. And the king, the king of Gaza, shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon, that's the other one, shall be uh, uninhabited. I'm sorry, another one of those groups, those cities. Finally, the fourth one, verse 6, a mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod. That's the other of the major cities and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abomination from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. We don't have the time to touch on that. We'll do that another time. Then uh, we have this statement, verse 8. Then, then, after those cities are defeated, God through Zechariah says, Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. So what's happening here? Alexander defeats the Philistine Empire on the southern side of Israel. The perennial enemies of the Jewish people. And as Zechariah prophesies that, which took place 200 years later under Alexander the Great, it's an encouragement to the Jews, no matter how strong your enemies might be, 
Your enemies will be defeated at the hand of God because he has a plan for you. But I would like you to see that there is a very interesting little thing tucked right in here uh, with the defeat of the Philistines and Alexander's march through the land. And it is verse 8. You understand that Alexander the Great, the great conqueror, is moving through that whole area. Now, as he moves from the north to the south, guess what is not far at all as he makes his way south? The city of Jerusalem, the capital of the Jewish people. And there in Jerusalem, there is the house of the worship of Jehovah, God of Israel, the temple. And you would think that Alexander the Great would say, well, while I'm at it, I'll not only uh, defeat Tyre and Sidon, the Phoenicians, and not only will I defeat the, uh, the Philistines, Philistia, but actually, while I'm at it, I'm going to defeat the Jews. And I'm going to destroy their city the way I've destroyed Tyre, the way I destroyed these other cities of the Philistines. I'm going to go ahead and destroy the city of Jerusalem. I mean, already it had happened before, and it's going to happen again. And go ahead and destroy the temple while you're at it. Here's the amazing thing. Verse 8, God says, 200 years before Alexander... Then I will encamp at my house. What is God's house at that period of time? The temple. God says, I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none, namely Alexander, none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes, God says, the plight of my people. And guess what? Alexander did not touch the city of Jerusalem. It was as if he bypassed it. Why? Because God said he would 200 years before. Well, that is the major, the first major section. But if you would look at the second major section, which is verses 9 through 17, you'll find here that not only does God indicate, as he does in the first eight verses, that he can bring down and will bring down uh, the proud, the mighty, and the haughty, including all the enemies of Israel, but God basically says that the time is coming in the future, and yes, it is far in the future. God, In fact, we know now, because of the time when Zechariah issued this prophecy, 520 B.C., now we know that this hasn't yet happened, but God says it is going to happen. And that is a time when God will defend the Jewish people against all of their enemies and ultimately will bring them to victory as they are led by a king, as they are led by a ruler who is none other than Jesus. Ah, yes, but Zechariah makes it very clear in chapter 9, verse 9, that this king, this ruler, this leader, who is Jesus, is very different from the leader, the king, the ruler, we see in the first eight verses, Alexander the Great. Alexander was a man of war. He was a man of pride. Remember, he cried because there were no more worlds to conquer. But 
the description in Zechariah 9.9 is of Jesus, a completely different kind of leader and ruler. And here we have this, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous. Nobody ever accused Alexander of being righteous. And having salvation is he. Humble. Nobody ever accused Alexander of being humble. And mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You, you can be sure that Alexander would not have been caught dead riding on the back of a donkey. His idea was a white charger. Now, of course, we understand that in the first coming of Jesus, this was fulfilled. In the later coming of Jesus, he will be arriving, as Revelation 19 describes it, on a white horse. But this is one of four messianic prophecies that we find in the book of Zechariah. And remember how long before this prophecy was fulfilled, Zechariah gave the prophecy. So let me read to you from uh, Matthew chapter 21. You'll recognize it, of course. Matthew 21, verse 1. We read this. And when they drew near, Jesus and his disciples, when they drew near to Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village opposite you, and straightway you shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say anything unto you, you shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done, says Matthew, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. What prophet? Zechariah. Chapter 9, verse 9, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. It is a direct fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. But the point is that this is a completely different kind of king, especially in his first coming. Now let me read the rest of that section and just a couple more comments before we wrap it up. Verse 10, God continues to promise what he's going to do for, for Israel in the future. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he, that is this leader, Jesus, shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Verse 10 says, it will no longer be necessary for the Israelis, the Jews, to have military weapons. In that period of time, uh, it was a chariot. At that period of time, it was a war horse. At that time, a period of time, it was a battle bow. But because God, through Jesus, is going to defeat the enemies of the Jewish people and lead them to victory, they will not need those implements anymore. And Jesus is described here as speaking peace to the nations. You want to know when real peace is going to take place in the Middle East? That's when it happens. Peace to the nations 
And then it says, his rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. The river there, by the way, uh, refers to the Euphrates River. Because back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 18, when God is promising to Abraham a land, he describes the boundaries of the promised land, the, the land promised to Abraham. And actually, the land that was promised by God to Israel, the Jewish people, starts in Mesopotamia, where the Euphrates River is, all the way to the east, and then going all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, north and south. But the description is of there being peace from Israel that extends to the rest of the world. Read on, verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, he says to the Jewish people, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. By the way, the waterless pit most likely is a cistern. A cistern would be um, something, a, a deep hole that was dug in the ground. Oftentimes it was lined with a huge ceramic jar, uh, oftentimes, to catch the rainwater. And it would be filled up with water during the rainy season so that when the rains ceased, there would be water to draw. Well, there were some cisterns that were not being used anymore, and they were dry. You might remember that when uh, Joseph's brothers, uh, because of their jealousy of Joseph, decided to sell him to slave traders, they threw him into a cistern, a waterless pit. It's the same word that is here. And the idea is, well, that's bad enough, but at least there's not water in there when you drown. I mean, you don't want to be in a cistern when it's full because eventually you're going to go under. And so the picture here is when Jesus comes, he is going to deliver the Jewish people, and he says, I will set your prisoners. How many times have Jews been prisoners, like concentration camps, from the waterless pit? Their imprisonment has been awful, but it has not destroyed them completely. Read on, verse 12. Return to your stronghold, O oh, prisoners of hope. That's a description of what the Jewish people have experienced throughout their history. The many times when they have been prisoners, but he calls them here prisoners of hope. And he says, you can return to me because I'm going to deliver you. Interestingly, prisoners of hope, um, the Hebrew word for hope is tikva, tikva. And here in the text of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 12, it appears in the Hebrew text with the definite article, the. So we should read it, return to your stronghold, O prisoners of the hope, the hope. It's the only place, by the way, where this Hebrew word tikva appears with the definite article, the, the hope. thought you might be interested to know what the name of the national anthem for the Jewish people is, it's Ha-Tikva, the hope. Ours is the Star-Spangled Banner. Theirs is Ha-Tikva, the hope. Prisoners of hope, today I declare that I will restore to you double, just as the Jews experienced double suffering because of their disobedience, so they will experience double blessing. I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow, that is the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, 
against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Here is another wow moment. Through Zechariah, God says to the Jewish people, Your sons, O Zion, I will stir up against the Greeks. Now, Alexander was a Greek. But when Alexander died at the age of 32, his empire was divided four ways. And the one part of the emperor, emperor empire uh, is what embraces the whole area of Syria and modern Israel today. And that was still part of the Greek empire, but there was a group of kings uh, known as the Seleucid kings. And from uh, Alexander's time onward, for hundreds of years, they were in charge of Syria and Israel. Uh, the main king, in fact, seems like every one of those Seleucid kings, was given the title Antiochus. Antiochus. In 168 BC, and if this sounds familiar, it's because it's the story upon which Hanukkah is based. In 168 BC, uh, Antiochus, who hated the Jewish people, and he was a Syrian Greek, a Greek in charge of Syria, and he desecrated the temple in Jerusalem in 168 BC. You know the story. He sacrificed a pig there on the altar of sacrifice. That so incensed the Jewish people that there was a family of Jews who became known as the Maccabees, and they rose up against the Greeks and defeated them and regained control of the temple, dedicated the temple, one day supply of oil lasted eight days. That's what Hanukkah is all about. But what we have here is the statement that verse 13, I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. By the way, that happened 350 years after Zechariah prophesied. Finally, this. Verse 14, Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. They shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them. Who? The Jews. As the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his head. So I make this point that Zechariah chapter 9, verses 16 and 17 is God's promise that the redeemed Jewish people will be like the crown jewels in the diadem or the crown of King Jesus. But I close with this. There is a wonderful commentary on the book of Zechariah written by a man named David Barron. David Barron. David Barron was a Jewish believer. He was raised in an, as an Orthodox Jew. He became a believer in Jesus. He lived from 1855 to 1926. 1855 to 1926. And uh, David Barron, <clears throat> in 1918, 
wrote this commentary, which I consider to be the best commentary on the book of Zechariah. And I have quite a few. Uh, I want to read to you what David Barron says <clears throat> about the fact that between Zechariah 9.9, which is the prophecy of Jesus' first coming, when on Palm Sunday he rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, between then and his second coming, it's a long span of time. But this is what he says. A pause of nearly 2,000 years has already ensued between the ninth and 10th verses of this great prophecy. Between the time when Jesus, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet Zechariah, presented himself to the daughter of Zion as her true king, meek and riding upon an ass and upon a colt the full of an ass, and the time when he shall speak peace to the nations and shall visibly stand and feed or rule in the strength of Jehovah in the majesty of the name of Jehovah his God. In other words, the span is long. But, Baron goes on to say, this is sure and certain, that however long the pause may last, God never loses the thread of the purpose which he has formed for this earth. And as surely as the prophecies of the sufferings of Christ have been literally fulfilled, so surely will those also be which relate to his glory and reign. And although Israel and the nations have had to wait long for it, we're still waiting, the angels' song at the birth of our Savior, peace on earth and goodwill toward men, will yet be realized. And Christ will not only be owned by his own people as the king of the Jews, but his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river even unto the ends of the earth. And then he says this, Meanwhile, while we wait, meanwhile, while he is still rejected on earth, he is exalted at the right hand of God in heaven. And to those who recognize him as king now and render to him the glad allegiance of their hearts, he already speaks peace. Yea, a peace which passeth all understanding, even in the midst of outward strife and travail such as the world cannot take away. I'll add one thing, and that is this. David Barron's uh, prophecy, or his, his commentary on Zechariah, was printed, this edition was printed in 2000 in Israel by a company, a printing company, that is owned and operated by Jewish believers. In 2000, this was published in Israel. And by the way, I received this copy as a gift from one of our ministry affiliates in Israel, who is a Jewish believer. And if there's any question that God can and will keep his promises, including his promise to move in the hearts of Jewish people, that should be a reminder to us. Thanks for listening to Ancient Words, Modern Message. You can expect a new episode every other Monday, so please join us again. Ancient Words, Modern Message is supported by Hebrew Christian Fellowship.
To learn more about our ministry or to ask a question, contact us at hcfellowship4819 at gmail.com. If you know someone who might be interested in this teaching, please share it with them. And please consider leaving a review of what you've heard on Apple Podcasts. Your input helps us make our program even better and reach new listeners. All you have to do is open up the podcast app on your phone, look for Ancient Words, Modern Message, scroll down until you see Write a Review, and tell us what you think. Ancient Words, Modern Message is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. And I'm your host, Roger Womble, reminding you that the Word of God is living and active. Until next time, showers of blessings on you and those you love.